Hello, our dear lurkers out there. We are back with another episode of the Third Age Babylon 5 podcast. For those who still don't know us, would be which is really embarrassing if you don't, but well, it's okay. We are three Europeans that were too young when the series was the first time around, but we are watching it now for the upteenth time, the second time, and for the first time. So you have uh, very different perspectives on every episode we are discussing. We are Alex, Layla, and my name is Michael. And today it's the episode 17, which is called Legacies. But we, before we jump to our um, discussion, first we have to ask, uh, go around with our introduction question, which is today, how would you get rid of a body? Um, yeah, who wants to start? Who has the most pressing problem there? I, I think you have the most plan. What? Me? I would expect so. Uh, okay, wait, um... Let me start this way. I always wonder when I innocently watch uh, movies or TV shows or whatever, I always wonder why people put a body in any kind of water, like in a river or in a big lake or something, because it's just so clear that it will show up and that it will probably show up whenever you want it the least to show up. So, um, I don't know. I was always thinking that burning a body would be good, but of course you need like a good reason to make a big fire which i think is easier to come up with than other things so just you know cremate it when nobody can notice i think that's probably one of the best and i mean also putting it in your freezer i mean what if you just at some point just i don't know acted weird and your neighbor calls the cops and suddenly they search your freezer that's also not a good idea so really i think i think yeah I think I'll stick with you burning it. I would make a big bonfire party and then always put little body pieces into it so that no one notices. So I guess uh, your your best time here in Germany for burning or get, getting rid of a body would be on Easter. Yes, our Easter fires. We have fires on the Saturday of the Easter weekend. Everywhere big bonfires. That would be one, or you know, St. Martin's, you know, this, 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 our version of Thanksgiving kind of where you go like with your lanterns and then also some people afterwards make a bonfire, which would be even more fun to get rid of a body because you always have a priest watching you and you know, that's, <laughs> yeah. But that's like two opportunities per year. I think that like covers your bases pretty well. Yeah. So that's me. I'd, I have not given it much thought before. I mean, you mentioned putting putting stuff into water, which is not the not the greatest plan because it tends to float back up again. Uh, I always wonder there's a surprising amount of true crime cases that involve cooking. Like the vast majority of these, nobody gets eaten. Like cannibalism is not that common, but a lot of people just kind of instinctively go, "I have a big hunk of meat. I need to get rid of it." I guess it's doing time and. I, I don't know, maybe I would just go with that trend. I, I feel like if you just like manage to can it up and like store it somewhere, then that's the easiest way to get rid of it. I have to admit, if I would go your way, I would rather do it uh, in the sense of where you have to go to a party and bring something to eat. I mean, it's gone directly. I mean, no one can find this. I mean, if, if it's not getting eaten well, then... Then you're not cooking enough. That's not part of the problem, right? Uh, but... How is this movie called? <laughs> oh, sorry. How is this movie called? It's a musical. It's a... 
Sweeney Todd is it actually? It is yes, Sweeney Todd. Todd. I'm stupid. Yeah. See, that works. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. I think I would be, yeah, the one who would try to melt the body with chemicals in her bathtub and just rinse it out. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I have a biochemist here, so I would just go send him. I mean, he's he has keys for the university, so I would just send him there and tell him, yeah, bring me the right stuff back. And yeah, then I just would it flush it down the the sink or whatever. I mean, probably people at some point would ask questions what your chemicals were for, but you have a pretty good chance that they cannot really point it out. That's actually really clever. Yeah. No, it's just I mean, you know, it's it's a reason why it's the breaking bad way of of doing it, right? It's it's the mainstream way of doing it. Which <laughs> is why we didn't show us if we are too much into counterculture, you see. <laughs> is it done is it done in, in uh Ah yeah, you just said the name and I already it, forgot. It. Like, this is where everybody famously learned that you shouldn't do it in the bathtub because it might corrode the bathtub as well and then everything leaks. Yeah, oh my god, that scene. Oh, yeah. Oh. This is why you want plastic yeah, containers, but you can get those. It's fine. Uh, but, okay, so... Like I said, I have a biochemist here, so I, I'm yeah. sure you will find a way. Uh, having an well, accomplice immediately. I do it, so I, I, I have nothing to do with it. I didn't do anything. Already, already constructing an alibi. This is why we are making this. Uh, this is why we have to announce very clearly when and where we are making this recording, just to be sure. Well, I was just thinking. Well, I'm saying this now, but what happens when someone sees this, and the next time we have to call the plumber because our our um, water isn't running out of the of the rinse so we all should hope there's no murder in our immediate vicinity like for the next half year after this episode starts. <laughs> otherwise this might become a problem yes mm, yeah i think so too damn it you want yeah well <laughs> <laughs> well what a lovely transition to our episode for today um yeah well to the synopsis, the, the shortest version is we have, on one hand, a dead Mimbaria warrior from um, who was back there on the line fighting in the war. And on the other hand, we have a telepath girl um, who, yeah, well, she just well, she's just discovered as a telepath. And, well, the body goes missing. The girl has to decide where she will live in her f in the future, if it's Psycorps or, I don't know, wherever. And, yeah, well, that's basically it about the episode, without spoiling anything. That's a pretty good synopsis right there, so I guess we can jump right into our first impressions. How did this one land? Well, well I was happy to get a few informations about uh, especially about the war and everything and a bit more about the Minamari culture on the other hand it was a soft episode it wasn't like like something with big action or anything I, I liked watching it. it was rather quick to watch um when I when I when the episode ended I was like oh it's already over okay um, so I guess um, certainly worthwhile, um, though not as deep as other episodes were so far. But it was a nice one for me. 
okay, that's a pretty balanced review right there. Uh, how about you, Leila? Um, yes, the same for me. Um, I think it's definitely, yeah, uh, I used that word too much, but it's an interesting one. It's one that I enjoyed watching, but it, um, it, I liked it. I think let's keep it with that. I just liked it. It was a nice episode to watch. Very short and sweet. And, uh, I think I will just, uh, follow your lead there. I, I liked it as well. Every so often especially with season one episodes, there's one that kind of triggers in my mind a, a chain reaction. And then I have like this big rant that I want to go on. And this happened for me in, on this watch through with this episode, but I'm, I'm, this is why I'm extra excited to talk about it a little bit, because there are a, a handful of things in here that I never really paid much attention to, but on this watch through, uh, really, really struck a chord with me. And they have a lot to do with what you, Mike mentioned, uh, learning more about the Mimbari in this one. So. No, I'm, I'm very excited to talk about it. Um, so if everybody is fine with that, should we start with the, the, the main bulk of the episode, our body gone missing? Just roll with it. Okay, then, uh, I mean, I'll, let me just put the thing that has been stewing on my mind since we watched it yesterday. Uh, uh, and m maybe this is going to be an interesting starting point, or maybe not, but... I mean, this episode is all about exploring the, the growing rift between the warrior caste and the uh, religious caste. I think this is the first time we really get a good look at the warrior caste, right? Yeah, and and for me, this is very interesting because this explores sort of the relationship of a military and the rest of society, which is something I think is a very prescient uh, issue that Babylon 5 touches on there because, you know, nowadays this is something that is always talked about. How do you deal with veterans returning from war, how do you deal with the consequences mentally and physically of war, how do you deal with the fact that, you know, especially right now in Europe, all the nations are kind of reckoning with the fact that, oh yeah, having a functioning military is more important than ever. And in a lot of media, this is usually explored in this direction. You don't want a military to take over the society, right? If you remember watching the, the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, this is a big topic, or you look at Star Trek with the Klingons as an example, there's often this idea you don't want the military to replace your government, right? That's usually a bad thing in real life. Uh, but this episode feels like it's almost doing the polar opposite, where it shows us the Mimbari as a society where the military is completely separated from everything else. It's its own little caste where the people look different from the way they dress to the head crests and everything they do is, is slightly different. And it goes a little bit into the tensions that arise from that, from basically taking the entirety that is the military and shoving it into this this extra bubble of your society. And I just find that very interesting. Yeah, interesting, but I think also problematic because if you're in this military bubble, um, and that's and yeah, the military staff, the the way you plan your day and everything is so disconnected from yeah well I, I want to say the real life the not war life um the the ones who are yeah the the calmer the peaceful part um therefore I would be worried that it's going even it, it, that it would be going more in the direction of a pro-war um yeah, direction because what 
I mean, if you have big, big army and everything, if if there's just peace, they kind of that the existence is like unnecessary, or at least in in this scale. Or that at least that's where that would be my worry. I I, I think I completely agree with that. That. It, it creates like it it doesn't seem like an ideal setup that they are having right this entire idea that dylan also keeps explaining to us that ah they're the warrior cast and it's dangerous that they're drifting apart from us and it doesn't seem like the society really has a way of dealing with this and you know if, if we look at real life examples you have soldiers coming back from war and if if they enlisted at a very young age integrating them back into society is a problem and now you look at the membari and they just don't do that they just let the warriors stew on their own and i mean D dylan mentions this when when the war is over and peacetime comes one of the war leaders just straight up commit suicide because he has just suddenly no purpose in life anymore and especially for a 90s show talking about the fact that hey if you have a bunch of warriors and you just tell them it's over now without helping them out that might lead to to this kind of problems this kind of uh, even self-harm i i feel like that's a topic that's talked about much more nowadays than it was back when the show was aired but it's it's nonetheless very valid i was just wondering now that we talk about that that the Mimari just have this big military and that put um them into one cast where they exist in this military world um that is not it's not it i mean it, it's it's do we know what that is in numbers like it's basically half of this of society at least from what they've, what Dylan has described by now, it's yeah. There's the religious caste and there's the military caste. Yes, I mean that is the society. You are either in the religious caste or you are a part of this big military. So I don't know. I mean this, I think this problem that we have that we um have a society that is kind of diverse and we have people who come back from war and cannot integrate back. I think that would also look different in the, in the Lambari world because the, the, there's just not this big society and the small military. There's just either you are in the religious caste or you are in the warrior caste. So I think the warrior caste has a lot of more to say in the daily life of a Lambari because you only have these two options. It does. Would, it, sorry. Um, just one thought of mine. I would be interested to see if there are Lambari who have a problem with this binary existence in their culture. Because I think it's rather limited. It is. And I mean, we see even Dylan, who seems to be like very much a paragon of the religious caste, kind of struggling with the fact that here you have somebody that she was a close friend with who switched from one caste into the other. But it's interesting, to, it's interesting to know that you can do that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was one of our questions. I think I'm I'm not sure which which episode we we threw in this, mm -hmm. but I think it's rather interesting to see that you can switch. You Though can do I it. would be interested to see if this was is generally the case or just because of the circumstances, the war circumstances here. Um, but yeah, well, there's some sort of way at least. There is definitely some sort of way, although I suspect it's an exception rather than the rule, because we learned that the war broke out and this guy who was a high priest was forced to become a war leader, and then he stayed a war leader, even 10 years after the war is ended. So it doesn't feel like if he really, and Dylan talks about this, like he always wanted to be a priest first, 
if that was really the case, if it would have been easy, I suspect he would have just changed back. But that never happened. So maybe it's just a societal obligation that he had, or maybe there's literally just no mechanism to do this. But it certainly seems like it's not that easy to do. And maybe just something that's under, like you say, Mike, under special circumstances can happen. What I found interesting that when um, Delenn was, uh, what was the other guy's name? It was something with an N. Narun, when they were discussing um, later w about the circumstances of the body, um, it was about the heritage of um, well, yes. the, well, the the dead guy was named I think Brenner, Brenner, yeah, Brenner, um, that his father was from the warrior warrior caste and that his mother was from the religious caste, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure how the land phrased it, but it sounded to me like the mother's side had more impact or more importance i'm i'm not sure how to understand that if it's um generally that the the yeah the heritage of the mother is regarded higher or something or that it's the the religious part because they were both religious there is are a lot of ways to interpret this but i found this rather interesting to hear. And you would assume there has to be like some kind of mechanism to determine if, if this mixed marriage exists, who the child belongs to, so that it's matrimonial kind of makes sense, right? It's, it's a 50-50 chance, chance that it's going to be one or the other. Um, and there's definitely also, when you talk about heritage, this entire extra layer that we learn Yes, the the castes are very important to the Minbari, but their society also revolves a lot around these clans. Like, this guy is not just warrior class, but he's part of the Star Rider clan. And honoring and dishonoring this kind of unit is also something very important, apparently. So we see there's certainly more diverse, like, categories within the Minbari society than just this binary, but that seems to be, like, something that is very much governing anything. And at least I, I'm curious what your impressions were from this episode, but at least to me it also seems in this episode especially like there is somewhat of a hierarchy going on where at least right now the religious caste is very much in charge because it is peacetime and basically the entire plot revolves around the fact that Dylan, as a religious caste authority figure decides what is going to happen and basically also... Uh, tells Nerun at any point what he's going to do and he just has to accept that because she's in a position of authority. And we learn the same about the Membari War where it ends because the religious caste says we are surrendering. So at least in this situation it's it's kind of this idea you have this binary and this very big military caste but for the moment they seem to be somewhat uh, on, on the back foot. I mean we have two Membari representing all of the Membari on Babylon 5 and both of them are religious caste. It's Yes, but I mean, I'm not so sure at this point, actually, what we get to know about the Grey Council as the show goes on. So it's interesting for me because this question that is in my mind right now, I could not answer. But I think um, this could also depend on who is voted into the Grey Council. Certainly. Yeah, yes, that, that would have been something I would have been wondering about. Is it just... The, uh, is it voted or is it I don't know uh, something where where someone draws your name out of a pot or is it is it a mixed council from from both sides is it just one cast there so up until now I think we 
don't know answers to this yet. So I think maybe what what would what cast has what kind of influence can also depend on how the Great Council is built in that exact moment in time. And it it will also depend a little bit on what the Great Council really is, because it it certainly is some kind of ruling body of the Membari for sure. But at the same time, we know Dilen is part of of something important, but. You know, it, it, it's it's a little bit like saying that the, the Membari have a president. That can mean a lot of things. Is it like the uh, executive in chief or or is it, you know, more a figurehead here? And and it's hard with the Grey Council to tell, like, how exactly this functions. We, we, we learn here certainly that Delenn holds a hell of a lot of authority. But, you know, she, she doesn't seem to be involved in the governing of the Membari as a whole in any capacity. Oh, I really like to see her telling uh, Narun off, like you're not yes. allowed to do this. It was nice to see her really in this this power position because now we have really proof of how powerful she is. It was until now more a bit shady in the background. Yeah, uh, and he is clearly facing someone who is not on the same page like her. So. Yes, and also to see that um, these these institutions of their society are still working because he then tells her, um, no, he calls her Satai Delenn and completely obeys. So he really, he understands her power and her function in that moment and does not question that. And we also see like stuff goes beyond that. She had people in place that she can order to get rid of the body. She had people in place who could hide the giant bonfire you need to cremate him. And a ship in place to get him back to to Minbar and stuff. So there's clearly also this idea that she has a lot of people that she can call on, that she can trust. So so there's certainly a lot of authority here. Although with Dylan, I'm always a little bit mixed in this episode because on the one hand, it's it's really great seeing her tell of Nerun in this uh, in this scene. On the other hand, if I just imagine, okay, but from the perspective of the warrior cast, what has just happened, it's just another instance where somebody, where a religious leader comes there and says, your entire, like, wish of, like, trying to honor the dead leader that you had, yeah, we're not going to do that. And, of course, it's sympathetic because she's the one that we know and she's acting on behalf of the wishes of the dead guy, so... I can completely see that, but I can also see why for the rune this is just really unfair what is happening. So, uh, personally, my my favorite scene is immediately after that when we see Sinclair actually like finding a way of fixing this up a little bit and saying, "Hey, you didn't get to honor your elite that like you wanted to, but I could acknowledge him as somebody who fought him." And like when it comes to reconciling the rift between the warrior cast and the rest of the universe, I feel like. Sinclair does a lot of the heavy lifting here. He actually initiates a lot more dialogue. And at least to me, it seems this comes from this place that in his society, these castes don't exist. Sinclair was forced to be both a warrior on the line and a diplomat, which uh, we see in this episode. And uh, with the Membar, we see these are clearly two different sides of their culture, where the diplomat is Dylan and the warrior is Nerun. And none of these two really have both experiences, so they can't really make that connection that Sinclair can do. Um, one thing to go back to um, 
when Narun says the first time acknowledge the land as Satai. Mm. I wasn't quite sure when he first said that if there wasn't a bit of an undertone there, um, like, oh, now you're playing the Satai card on me. Mm. At least it felt a bit to me like that. Yes. I would like to get back to that um, later, maybe just like a mental note, because in general, the reactions that Narun either shows or causes in the people around him, I think, can tell us a lot of how the casts actually work. But that's a discussion on, on of its own, so we can get back to that. But yeah, mental note. <laughs> Definitely. In, in general, I think paying attention to what Narun causes in interactions here is a lot of fun, not just with Dylan, but with, yeah, like you say, everyone around him. He's... I enjoy, I enjoy his character in this episode uh, quite a lot for somebody who just comes in for, for this weekly episode. Uh, he, he suddenly has a bigger presence. I will not tell you. I'm here, so you're not going to get that information. Yeah. So far, the chances are pretty low. We have not seen many recurring characters. We heard of them just. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the other thing, um, since you mentioned Sinclair's reconciliation, um work there i think he is rather tough in this episode because i mean he's faced even though the the guy is dead um he's still faced with a general that gave him a lot of problems that caused a lot of deaths um and therefore traumatized him and he still manages, except for one situation where the when Narun is really being an ass, uh, he's really, really patient, calm, still trying to make the best judgment for peace, for yeah, for the best. And I don't know if I had the the power, the strength, the energy to do this in in this situation. I mean, it is been a while but still there are things that you don't shake off that easily so yeah i'm really impressed here how sinclair handles it especially then in the ending saying hey i not acknowledged this this guy for for his actions yes i totally totally see that um but I also felt in the end of that scene i mean we have now already in our analysis of that uh, episode given it like its own meaning in the Babylon 5 universe, like how he could make this connection that in this part of society of the Membari is difficult to make. But still, I felt like this act of I honor him as a warrior, although I met him on the line, I think for 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 humans in the 20th or even in the 21st century, writing characters in a setting where this is believable is also a kind of wish fulfillment, isn't it? Like you could just translate it into so many situations. I think that was really written for, yeah, as, 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 as a dream, probably. That's what I felt in that scene. Yeah, it's, it's also particularly interesting if we talk a little bit about the circumstances of the Battle of the Line, right? Like this is the final confrontation between humans and, and uh, Minbari. And when we think back to, uh, to, to the episode when Sinclair was exploring the hole in his mind and talking about this battle, it was practically a massacre, right? Like his entire squadron got wiped out. So it's also this thing here you have Sinclair who has to tell, I respect this great general's like bravery and valor and his tactical cunning. But, you know, the battle the guy was involved in was basically like 
completely one side. Like there wasn't much heroics to be had in fighting humans at this point when they are making their last specimen stand. So I think there's just this added weight of yeah, I, I, I guess you can see that this guy was a good commander, but but honestly, like this is this isn't like two equal fighters like clashing with one another and then recognizing each other's strength. Like they. Sinclair was never in a position to do something like this, so it makes his gesture here just even bigger. And uh, I, Mikey, you mentioned it's been 10 years. I, I really appreciated this first scene where the war cruiser shows up and we get Garibaldi's and Sinclair's reaction to this because I think they really sold this idea that, yeah, it's been 10 years, but over these 10 years, they haven't seen a ship like this very often. So as soon as that happens, it brings you right back. And like with any trauma, if... It doesn't really matter how much time has passed. If there's a certain trigger that brings you right back into it, that makes it pretty much impossible to really deal with that, uh, with this sort of distance. Certainly. So, even um, well, let's leave it out. The idea of the reconciliation work is badly written in, in, in the sense of unrealistic. Let's leave that out and just think about the thing why or how uh, Sinclair is able to do this or is mm. doing this so either I would say he is doing this with the thought of I do this to make the future better to close the rift uh, to make it easier to talk to each other which would be a really awesome way of doing this because yeah going over your own emotions this heavily um to make yeah the future a better place is something um i don't think a lot of people can do mm. uh, especially if you're wounded personally so deep on the other hand i could think of that it's somehow connected why the membari ended this war because they they looked in his mind or whatever it is they have done to him whatever happened there had some sort of impact on the Mimbari to say okay we, we, we don't continue this war so yeah maybe this is something connected to this but have we agreed on that this uh, scene was written badly I wouldn't say badly. I think well, it's badly with 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 um, what what's it called in in English? <laughs> Quotation marks. Quotation marks. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I I wouldn't say badly. Just that it's uh, a a very big hurdle for him to jump on, right? And yeah. uh, no, I, I I want to clarify. That it's not like I say it's it's written bad in the sense of yeah they they just fucked up, but it's really heavy transition there to, yeah. to go to have a character um, with this past doing this kind of action so yeah. something has to have either happened there for him to be able to go this way or he was from the beginning a person with this yeah diplomatic peace concentrated personality for him to make this move even yeah. though he is is a part of the uh, he he was a soldier so and yeah. like you pointed out there is definitely in this episode 
once again the reiteration, whatever the Membari did, looking into Sinclair's mind, is something that convinced them to end the war in, in some way. There might be a connection there. And, and in this episode, we just got the confirmation this was a religious or at least non-military decision to surrender. It's a religious caste that decided something happened. And I mean, this was basically known already that there was no military reason to, to end the war then and there. That, that, that would have been completely fine. Um, I, I wonder... Oh. Um, sorry, I keep what you want to say. I just want to throw in here, we got one hint here that the murder of Ducat was part of uh, the reason the Mumbai War st started. Yes. And I think Gary Baldy is it who's saying um, that it... Terrible in accident. accident. Yeah. So yes. Whatever the circumstances, whoever this person is, um, it, there's, there's a tiny little bit of an idea we get now how this shit just was able to start. Yes, and I think we are also being told that um, that the war also started by two ships meeting each other and the weapon ports were open. So this gesture that we see here that the ship of the warrior cast shows has been misunderstood before. And I think it's interesting that we see humans here for the first time ever understanding this gesture. Like there was this big gesture that is just culturally accepted among Mambari. It started a big war and 10 years later, for the first time ever, uh, humans start to understand what it actually meant all those years ago. And and for me, this is also like, it brings us right back to this class division where we have, where these ships arrive, they have been like planning to get there. And still the war leader is like, I don't explain myself to you. My gun ports are open, deal with it. I'm just not going to tell you this. And then... <laughs> Dylan has to walk in and gives the explanation. And at this point, I don't even blame the warrior guy here. It's just in their culture, diplomacy is done by the religious caste and war is done by the warrior caste. So he is never going to explain this because that's just not warriors do. And you can see how this is even in this setting of this episode set up for failure. This is a terrible system to do diplomacy. It's not great. Like... Dylan could have told Sinclair this at any point beforehand, but she didn't for dramatic effect, I presume. And also, I, I'm not saying this is badly written or anything. It's just like, yeah, the Mumbari are really set in their ways, and these are not very conducive to a peaceful first contact situation or any kind of contact situation. Yes. Uh, but but to bring it back to, to, to what Micah said, I also wonder, like, how many dots is Sinclair connecting here? Like, in his mind, I can also imagine... He knows there are people on Earth yearning for a rematch, genuinely trying to like kidnap him and get into his mind to figure out what the heck happened uh, for the Membari to surrender. I wonder if he's kind of like, okay, here's Nerun, this guy that is also yearning for a rematch because he also desperately wants to know what the heck happened on the Membari side. Honestly, if I can get on his good side somehow... Maybe I actually get somebody there who is going to be more forthcoming with information than Dylan has ever been, because that she is secretive and will do stuff on her own is just something that Sinclair just learns again in this very episode that, you know, she's not above just using her authority and making up religious miracles that everybody else just kind of has to run with. I love that we are there when a religious miracle is born, but... um. Maybe let's talk about 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 Sinclair and about how he's written just for one more thing because um, I think yes, for once he connects a lot of dots in his mind, but also um, 
about um, getting behind the mystery of how the Mimbari War started and how it ended. I think he is the human who has the most insight at this point in history. He's the only one who can probably solve the riddle at some point, and he's aware of it. And I, I think what we see here what is something that Sinclair realizes, but what is also something I think the writing tries to convey to us is that every society kind of has these these ways in which it functions and every society is kind of set in its ways because if it isn't it's chaos you know you need a kind of system that somehow works and um um that just causes certain problems and certain conflicts at some point because things that are normal for you things that you want to communicate can blow up easily and um i think what sinclair is doing here or this the the opportunity that he has here is to be from the outside to see it to kind of i mean no nobody can ever be always neutral because you have your own background and if you look at this thing that's going on between these two membari casts he is clearly a neutral person sort of on the outside and can see what everyone is doing and so he can just gather as much information as he can and can act in in there as someone who's trying to solve things as someone who who sees what both sides kind of need because he's not a part of both of them and that is written wonderfully here, I think, and it is written in a way that is why I said, and this last scene was Narun, why I called it wish fulfillment, because I think this is really like you can look through human history in so many different, different, uh, different uh, places, and you can just feel like we need these people like him at the right time, at the right place, or we have disasters happen here and there. Yes. Yeah. And I think an important part here is not that he's. He is needed as a neutral person because the Minbari aren't able to do it themselves because every caste is like, yeah, like in, in their own bubble, but there's no no connect, no connect real connection between them. Um, so they don't step out of their, their bubble. They don't get another experience, another perspective, another idea. I have to, maybe I'm, I'm going too far with this, but I um, had to think of um, something I read from uh, Yoko Tawada. She is especially interested in languages and everything. She was originally born in Japan, lived in a lot of places and came then to Germany. And with learning other languages, she said that she was able to step out of her mother language and see things she didn't realize before, mm. like comparing how she, she was using... Um, um, oh, I, I don't even know the, the English word for, for it. Um, Seepferdchen? Seahorses. Seahorses, okay. It, it, it was that simple. Um, where, she, it, where she is thinking, okay, it's, it's the, the, she's referring to the, the German word, but it's also working for the, the English version. Uh, a horse in the sea. And in, in the uh, Japanese construction, it refers to, I think it was the child of a dragon or something in that direction. But she had to get out of her language to realize that. Um, and I think this kind of explains really good what the problem is with these two casts because they are just in their own language. So you can't, you are not able to grow from this if you're only, yeah, sitting in your in your pot uh, and, and just getting everything the same. Yes, and I think that is what easily can happen. I think 
Of course, we have, and um, sometimes we have institutions in cultures and societies that try to be this connection point. We have, um, we can have societies that are said to have a lot of communication. Um, but I think it easily happens that you need this view from the outside, that you need someone to take you out of it, or that you need someone to, 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 to intervene with like a fresh perspective. I think that's something that is in need here and there regularly. And so I think Sinclair is really written as this dream, this, this theory, whatever you may call it, of someone who can do that. And this works really well in line with what we just learned about uh, the Mambari culture when we look at last week's episode, like one of the main reasons Lanier is so excited about building a motorcycle is because we learned from him, this is a guy from the religious caste who spent most of his life very sequestered at his monastery and didn't even like really get off this planet before he went to Babylon 5 to serve under the land. So if this is the case, and we learn from the from the warrior caste that they have similarly like the Star Rider clan who starts just doing its own thing. So if you have this idea that there are really these clan groups that are then aligned with these castes, it's very easy to imagine how really these entire uh, cultural and societal circles like nations with different languages here on earth exist within Minbadi culture that have these divides between them. So it's, it might quite literally be also a language barrier at some points. Obviously, we don't explore this in the show for convenience sake, but you know, it's it's not hard to imagine that this is part of it, that there's just really not much interaction, like how much religious caste literature can a warrior caste leader easily read, how much of it is easily accessible. That might be a big thing. Also, how much are you taught? I mean, I taught um, German for um, um, German as a second language. A lot of times we call it, it is that in Germany when it is basically you refer to children that you teach. Um, and a lot of studies today actually have shown us that uh, you have different personalities in the different languages you speak. It is very subtle. It is not something that you would probably notice or that other people notice about you. But, you know, anyone out there who speaks two or three languages maybe knows that, okay, some jokes I only do in English or I only do in Spanish. And I think um, that, um, yeah, if, if you have a society that is completely like like this strict, you also kind of don't get the opportunity to explore yourself that way. Why? For me, for my teaching experience, I can tell that if you if you put children into school and they're not supposed to talk their native language anymore, they are supposed to only talk German, you also take away parts of their personality, parts of their humor, parts of their emotion, part of their own authentic self from them. So you always have to incorporate all of their other experiences that they made in other languages. So, um, um, yes, there is that. We definitely have this Mambari society that limits, I think, the horizon of its members in certain ways, in the way it has been said for a few thousand years by now, yeah. which is not something that is exclusive only to them, of course, but here we see that in action very clearly. Uh, and I think in, in the Mumbai we see it very clearly because it is sort of supported by the societal culture, uh, structures like the castes. But uh, I mean, even among humans, Sinclair is pretty special because we have our everyday uh, guy Garibaldi who is by his side most of the time and we see like Garibaldi would be not the right man for this episode because like from the very beginning he says well getting Mumbadri leader here is a terrible idea it's gonna be nothing like but trouble which is correct of course it is nothing but trouble it it almost creates a massive diplomatic crisis but Garibaldi also has nothing like productive to add to this <laughs> conversation like Okay, so what's your alternative? We just never talk to them. That's that defeats the purpose of Babylon Five. Then, so it's it's kind of this like 
even within human society, and I mean, that's not just in the show, that's in real human society as well, there, there is kind of this idea, yeah, you know, it's very easy to look at this and say, well, damn, that is a complicated and difficult situation. We probably shouldn't deal with that because it's very <laughs> risky, but, you know, that's, that's not going to, to advance this. So, I mean, you can do this as an individual, but you can't do this in, in a political sense yeah. because you have to live together in some way. So Which you have to live in the same galaxy, at least. Which, of course, also is, you know, yeah. to, to Garibaldi's credit, I imagine if he was in a position of having to deal with this, <laughs> he would be probably better at it. But he kind of has the luxury of being the security chief, so he can just be like, well, from a security perspective, this is a terrible idea. We should not be doing this. Thank God I'm not the diplomat in the room. But, I mean, one thing we can sum it up with for now, and I don't think we're through with that whole plot yet, but you mentioned the last episode. It was the last episode where we had the motorbike, right? Yes. Yeah. I think it's so, so nice to see that we have already two scenes between humans and Mambari that kind of really point out why we need the station, why we need a place like Babylon 5, which as you can translate it to, I don't know, nowadays to the United Nations or even to smaller institutions for like more isolated places or whatever. You can translate it to so many situations that you need these places where you can switch perspectives or you can have shared experience with all of your own perspectives, with all of your own baggage that you bring with. And I think it's so nicely written that we already see the station in action in how it works, what we want it to do before the whole real drama of the show actually starts because we're still in the beginning. <laughs> so yeah, that's just really nice at this point. I think that we see so many yeah, shared experiences and switched perspectives between Shimon and Mbari who 10 years ago were enemies to their death and all because we have the place Babylon 5 here. And I think exactly what you mentioned also justifies why Babylon 5 needs to be this massive to like one quarter of a million people station this massive city in space and not just a small place like the Michael if we think of of the presidium in in Mass Effect like this this individual ring where just a bunch of politicians sit together because we see in this episode also it doesn't work if you do what the Mimbari do and say ah we have a meeting place now let's send our religious cast members there because they are diplomatically well versed and they are best sorted and all the warriors that were fighting in the war we are not going to bring there because they are only going to cause trouble of course in the short term that's a good way of keeping Babylon 5 stable but ultimately what Sinclair he really shows is he trusts in the concept of Babylon 5 so much that he says no no Give me the troublemakers. Give me the people that really hate my guts because if I can extend a hand to them, that's actually making progress. It doesn't matter. Like, it, it, no, even as we are at war, there's probably some humans and some in Bari that can get along. But if I only ever have those interact with one another, that's never going to affect peace on a larger scale. So this is, this is why we want actually, like, just normal people living on the station with each other. But also, I really love that scene where uh, the body is gone, and in one room, I think we have, who do we have there? We have Sinclair, Delenn, and Naroon. Mm. And she talks and talks and talks, and Delenn is completely in the game, and it's like, yeah, that was, this was a great offense. But then she looks at him, and it's like, it's like waiting to intervene. It's like, okay, is he really going to declare war? When do I have to stop him? Mm. <laughs> I love that scene totally. Yeah. Yes, yeah, she, she, <laughs> the whole time, you yeah, have like, Something is off with her. That's yeah. not matching. <laughs> because she really looks at him like, I have to stop him right before he declares the next war, but I have to let him go on. <laughs> you know? 
it's it's even added upon when you think about that always at the back of her mind she has like okay i really want to have like this religious miracle happen but i also can't risk an actual war breaking <laughs> out like how long can i keep this lie up and at what point do i have to kind of play my cards right to to get through this because otherwise this is not going to work out so well yeah um before we are through with that plot um, I have one thing I would like to talk about, like the mental note I made earlier, and, and it is this, um, <clears throat> I think if you observe the interaction between Narun and the other people, like how he reacts and the reaction he causes in the people around, you can learn a lot about how the warrior cast works and how it use the world. Because um, I think right in the first scene, when the gun pods are open and everyone is like, oh my god, why are they attacking? And then Dylan explains how everything works. And then they scan the ship and see like, oh yes, okay, the weapons are not activated, they're only open, like it's really only a gesture. And Dylan leaves. And the first thing Sinclair says, okay, but keep scanning it and as soon as one thing blinks up, we do something. Um, and the way I see it is that this reaction is kind of like a response wanted like it is kind of kind of that being confronted with this with this um aggressive gesture you kind of also react you go on that level and so you kind of in that moment really view the world how someone in the warrior cast constantly views the world constantly has this perspective on every interaction and everything that would be my interpretation of that scene i if i, I... no go ahead um, if if I understand right, it, you you think it that uh, in this way that the warrior cast is like seeing everything through the eyes of is this going? I, I could that could be a potential, not necessarily a war, but at least a fight break out, and therefore we are ready to go at every second. Yes, always being prepared, always being ready to show full strength and always expecting it from everybody else. And if it is not happening, always also triggering it in everybody else to always focus on that, on this part of life, on this part of personality in anyone you meet. Um, I think. And I think what plays into this is also their idea of honoring somebody, right? Like I could imagine uh, they, they place a huge amount of importance on Sinclair in the end saying, hey, this war leader that you wanted to honor, I respect him because he was legitimately a great warrior. And I think in an alternate version, if you want this initial scene go really well, he could always say, okay, we activated our defense grid and Babylon 5 is completely better ready now because we acknowledge the fact that the guy you bring, the body that you bring belonged to a massive leader who would require this of us, who is still recognized even after death as such a great enemy, as such a great fighter that we feel obligated to show him this level of battle readiness and such. And I feel like on this level, then the warrior casket MC, ah, okay, yeah, that that matches with us. And I think there is even some wiggle room here of interpreting things in a favorable way. I, I mean, this then would really remind me on, like, how do you deal with Klingons properly in Star Trek? Like, you, you kind of have to get into their gist of how their honor system works. And if you can kind of get into this aggressive behavior then they're also at some point just laugh and get off their high horse and kind of get like, okay, you, you get what we are trying to do and this we can respect. Uh, which, you know, is also something I could see Sinclair succeeding at if he wasn't constrained by Dylan being there and this uh, diplomatic obligation of doing it there 
religious castaway at the same time. So there's, I can I can totally see that being part of it. Yeah. Um. Then another thing that I'm not sure if we have talked about it um, in detail or if you have anything more to add to it is what do we think about the way how our religious miracle is created in the end? How do we feel towards that scene and that idea? <laughs> I'm very curious what you're thinking about this, Michael, because when it comes to, you know, the religious miracles that we've seen so far in the show, you've been a little bit skeptical, I think, if I remember correctly. Well, there is religious in the first part, so it usually is my... The most feeling I have there is like, <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, I think the, the point is it's again, we're bullshitting people. We're telling them something to cover something up or to, to make them do something we want from them. <clears throat> um, yeah, well, it's, uh, I I don't really even know what to say to to this because <laughs> it's something that's really frustrating to me. Um, it's it's like yeah, like going in the in the same uh, di direction of of everything that I don't know the the witch trials, uh, everything. It's it's just like someone saying that it's religious and everything. Everyone else has to say hooray. Oh, we are going to have so much more fun with you and the, how the show proceeds. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't. I'm prepared. <laughs> Beautiful. But I was just wondering, maybe we could. I mean, what's interesting here is that Delenn is part of the religious cast and she's very high up. Like she's um, in the highest position that you can have politically as a Nambari. Delenn is a part of the religious caste here, so as a part of that group of the Mary that views religion and the and, 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 and values are connected to that as very highly as a high priority as really as this glasses she sees the world through, also has to use this religious understanding in a way that kind of takes the 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 magic away from it, I think, because she is really using it practically for a political play for something that she things is necessary for the people from Mbari society to have in that situation. So I think if you, I found it interesting to see that if you climb up high enough in the religious caste, you look so far behind the curtain that it all just, you know what I mean? It's, what's interesting to me, and I, I think this is also what makes this interesting because I, of course, Mike, I, I kind of know what to expect from you when it comes to obviously like this, but what what gives me hope that this maybe isn't just painful for you is this idea that we are, like you say, Leila, high enough in the hierarchy that none of the people involved with this religious miracle are getting conned by it. Like, Nerun was never going to sit there and on being like, oh my god, a miracle has happened. Like, he perfectly well knows that this is a story he's being told to cover up an obvious thing that she did and he just has to accept it. Yes, and that was the next step that I wanted to talk about. It's what you are going for, I think, mm -hmm. is why, what, 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 what could be her reasons? Why does she think that, um, I mean, besides, of course, um, just uh, her, her responsibility for her old friend, but why does she think that this, um, this kind of religious miracle is 
something Mimbar would swallow and also that the society on Mimbar at this point maybe actually needs. So why does she create this kind of miracle to then sell? I mean, maybe that's something we could talk about. Uh, I, I, we would definitely... Go ahead. Uh, we will definitely also keep this in mind in, in, as we see her going forward. What strikes me as interesting for her particularly is that she doesn't seem cynical about it. She's not sitting there like, ah, yes, I have improved my own standing with the Grey Council by politicking my way through this. Like, when she talks about being religious caste, she always seems very genuine. She seems to take this faith seriously, so it's not just her manipulating the masses uh, with some, some opium or something like no, that. She really thinks that this is something that needs to be seen and heard at this point, that that is needed. Yeah, which which is interesting. It doesn't make it less despicable, per se, yeah. but... I mean, it would make me cynical if I would have planned up in the religious cast to then kind of go through with these kind of mind games. I would be completely cynical and give up probably. I would be drinking with Londo at this point. So, <laughs> which could be a funny thing. <laughs> yeah. No, but uh, I th I think um, since she earlier said that um, was speaking of the rift between the casts, and if this is handled the wrong wrong way, that it would even go further apart i think this is her way of trying to connect both sides again because if you think about it one who was a warrior in the warrior cast no matter what he was before died as a warrior and then well if if you consider this miracle thingy really happening um it, it has this religious touch and therefore like like um the the universe or or whatever um entity they they have or what what you would phrase it like or they would phrase it like is seeing this major warrior as not a warrior but as a religious person a priest and therefore um his actions have a different weight and a different perspective so yeah I would yeah. see it as, as her trying to connect both sides with this action. Because in a way, we again have a character who can connect both sides here. We have someone who can swoop in and change, change perspectives because he was a priest and then he became a warrior and burying him only as the one or the other thing um, is a difficult choice to make here. So here we have a connection in the society that is more and more going apart. And um, yeah... I mean, using using a religion and creating a religious wonder to sell that to the masses is definitely definitely something questionable, and I totally see how that. I mean, I just said it would make me cynical to be part of that, but I also think um, here the the writing and how the stories are told already give a view on what religious is viewed as in Babylon Five. I think that it is this storytelling and making sense of the reality we live in. Not in this way of it explains the world before we have science to explain it, but in this making sense of the reality we have, kind of. And I think... so. Go ahead. It's just the two of us today, again and again and On again. On the same wavelength, but contradicting each other immediately. Um, I, I think um, what religion is in, in Babylon 5 so far the most you, you've already phrased it as make sense of, of the world, the universe. Um, so it's more the spiritual way that is going there, which is technically 
the the origin of re the religious part the the spiritual thing is to yeah to find out who you are what is your place in the world what is it you're well let's say supposed to do in the sense of what is it that makes you happy that helps the world helps others in in this kind of way and i think even though we have this religious theme most of the time it is going in this spiritual direction of how you phrased it um, how to make sense of the world and this sort of fundamental way of approaching religion uh for me also helps me understand how she can do this without being very cynical about it because the story that she tells of his body becoming disappeared by mystical means and transformed into something that couldn't either be buried as religious or warrior caste this is a kind of story like you would imagine in the like very original theological sense of of some of the most basic bible stories like creation story and stuff where The point isn't that people read this story and believe it. The point isn't to be a giant con to convince people that that is literally what happened. The point is the message behind that, which Nerun can get is kind of this idea, like you already said, hey, here's this guy that was part of both casts, so we don't determine him to be either way. He can just become something higher of Membari as a whole. And everybody hearing the story doesn't need to fully believe it, can also just read it as this much more practical sense, this is the action that was taken behind it. And when you have a religious story that isn't made up in a way to to sort of prey on people that are easy to convince of miracles to, to give money to somebody, but if it's literally somebody that wants to convey a message, and no matter how much you can deconstruct the reality of the story, the message still remains intact and valid, At that point, I can also see how she's fine with using this as a as as a story because then it's like, no, I I don't need everybody to believe me. I just need to them to get what I'm trying to tell them, and if the story helps them to do that, that's fine. But okay, we've we've talked about uh, this first plot quite extensively now, and we don't want to keep uh, Mike forever here, so. Uh, Maybe you want to take the lead on, on our secondary plot and then see how long you want to stick with us through that. Yeah, well, it's it's not a big thing with uh, the telepath girl, Alisa. Um, but I think it's a fine little something. Um, there, on, on one hand, we have uh, Talia back, finally, after yes. years of missing her. Um, and I, I think it's nice to see on, on both sides, we have Ivanova, we have Talia there, um, who are both trying in their, in their own perspective, the best thing for the new awakened telepath girl, Elisa. And, um, I really liked to see, um, here that so far we just have seen the 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 psychops route and that the alisa here is really given a choice and to see there are choices yes um and yeah it, it's it's kind of a happy ending compare compared to what we've seen up until now and especially in the context of um ivanova's mother and the reason why she's she's doing what she is doing 
Um, yeah. Well, that, that's technically the, the most I would have to say to this. It's It was nice to see. And I think it was kind of just um, a way also to solve this situation with the missing body and, uh, of course, giving um, Sinclair at the end um, a new hint for his uh, missing um, memories with the term chrysalis. Chrysalis? I'm not sure. Chrysalis. I also always say chrysalis. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I kind of, if, if I read it, I ha kind of have to think of a flower or something. Yeah. Um, like chrysanthemum. Yes. <laughs> yeah, like, like <laughs> kind of a thing. Yeah, it, it really underlines also the importance, once again, of having a place like Babylon 5, where these options can be a thing, right? Like you can easily yeah. imagine Susan's mother never had these choices because she was stuck on Earth somewhere. There's just nobody yeah. you can really turn to. And especially if Elisa would have been on Earth, that wasn't uh, something she would have been able to do either. Yeah. So... Well, I, I don't think every telepath would have this option on Babylon 5. This girl is just really, really lucky to be there at this moment to awake her telepathic ability in this very moment and Ivanova being right around the corner to see this and to help her. And I, I think it's also the first time that we really get an answer to a question that we've asked very early on this question of well psycho kind of sucks but what else are you going to do with telepaths right like it's it's this catch-22 where it, there, there is not really a good solution for having a bunch of people that are legitimately in need of special education and training and stuff but then you can't really do that without seg segregating them and, and causing all of these issues and this is the first time we see well humanity isn't alone anymore and there are a bunch of different species that have very much experience with telepaths so in theory, if you would open up human society a little bit more, many more people could get the different choices that uh, Alicia had, and that would be very, very good. Um, At least for the humans, the Psychops would be interested to eliminate that. Of course. Yes, and we could think about what kind of future that promises for her, because I think living with the Membari is probably not the worst. I think it's an interesting place for humans to be. Um, even with only what we are know, what we are aware now of, what we know about them now. But I think, I mean, you could think: Is Elisa? Will it ever be possible for her to enter a human space? Will she ever be possible again to visit Mars, to visit Jupiter, to visit Earth? Or is that the point where Psycho will probably snatch her and put her on drugs or in prison? That is something to think about. And I mean, probably she. she may still be able to socialize with humans because she can go to the space stations, she can go to more intergalactic places, so she's not cut off. But under Earth's jurisdiction, I think she can never return. It's, it's kind yeah, of she might be some kind of... You could you could think of this bit of an exile she's, she's going to. It because, depends yeah. on the legality of it, right? If she becomes an embodied citizen... Yeah. then legally Psychor can't get her even if she wanders around in, on Earth. Would Psycho respect that, though? Is a different yeah, thing. Like, uh, Esther wouldn't certainly not. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of this thing. 
Mr. Gray might, but Mr. Bester probably wouldn't. So it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely a complication. It's definitely something to think about. We can't answer that for sure, I think. But it's, a, it's definitely an interesting solution. Also, what I found interesting here was to see um, just, yeah, an alternative version of how telepath can be treated. And it's interesting to note that Narn don't have telepath. I mean, we already knew that from the pilot, but here it is pointed out again, they don't have telepath and it's a big thing for them. Yeah, and they were still very much working towards the solution and throwing money at the problem like crazy. It's sad that we didn't see what Londo would propose for her. But somehow Ivanova didn't want to ask him. I kind of understand that. But honestly, I think this this uh, with the the Narn, or in this case Natoth throwing money at at um, the telepath problem, it's such a centauri thing to do. Definitely, it's. it's Although I feel like the Satori would be more about trying to make money off it. They probably would still find a way to make this girl pay for <laughs> getting protected there. So it would be involving more loans rather than straight up payment, I presume. Also, I think if I were a telepath and I would choose a place that is not Earth, I feel like maybe not as a child that has to learn to live with her abilities, but as an adult, I think that uh, the Centauri home world would actually be kind of interesting. Because I think in their society, being the one who can read minds and um, being the one... I mean, it is dangerous, but it's also very cool to... to yeah, I think there, it would be cool to be a there. I mean, if we're talking about this topic, I have to say, I I, I kind of don't like the way that the non option is treated in here, because basically everyone is like, you definitely shouldn't go to the non because they suck. But then this poor girl gets told this, well, you shouldn't go there because, see, their minds are alien, which is objectively not a bad thing. They are just very alien. And, ah, their planet got bombed into oblivion. This is a radioactive wasteland now. Well, that's not the nun's fault. That's just one more reason to help them rebuild. Like, it's kind of... Yes, but honestly, I also always understood that she looked into that tough minds and she just saw things that she didn't want to live with. Like, maybe she saw what the world looked like. She saw their... Maybe they just saw the images that would mean her daily life and was like, okay, no, thank you. That is true. Although what, two scenes later, the price got upped and she was very much on board <laughs> again. So, I mean, she's also very much a teenager and very impressionable, right? Yeah. Um, but my... also, if you think about the, the man home world, what kind of person do you have to be or what kind of person do you become if you live in such a world, if you grow up in such a world? So, I mean, that is the thing. I mean, here, once again, we have a character who comes from, from the humans and goes to the Nambari as like a kind of connection. So here we have that theme again of switching perspectives, of being an interconnective point. And we see how that happened now a lot of times between humans and Nambari. And we see how that constantly fails if the Narn are involved. But also from the other side, also how everyone is like, no, not with the Narn. Maybe just make a mental note for how we continue watching. What does that mean for the Narn? What is their fate in the near future? I mean, as as Kosh said very early on, there are dying people alongside the Centauri, right? Like, even the Vordons <laughs> are like, yeah, nah, these guys don't try. Wow. It's, yeah, it's, it's not worth it. Um, my favorite parts about this plot are actually not involved with the telepath girl at all, unfortunately. It, it's, it's very character-based. Uh, for one, I feel like uh, Susan and Talia are in a very different place than we last saw them. Like, the very first scene is them, like, like exchanging looks across the bar, basically being like, we can't talk to each other normally, but we are also, like, kind of going to look at each other and, like, tentatively explore if, if there could be, like, any kind of normal social interaction. And then 
luckily the girl starts stealing and so they have an excuse to break that off but you get into that hot hearted if i don't put it <laughs> it got a little bit hot in there yeah yeah they basically spent this entire time i i said to, to Layla, they spent this entire episode as like basically bickering parents to this girl like trying to decide which is best for her and it was such an emotional experience talia even got bangs along the way i mean she even got a new haircut yes it was a very transformative no i i just like it because we haven't seen talia in a while but it, the implication is very clearly she has been interacting with the rest of the cast and their relationships have developed a little bit like she's not as much of an outcast anymore than she was in the very beginning but also this this interaction in the beginning of the episode, this just just not at each other. It's just respect. Yeah. It's I recognize you. I see you, even though I don't have anything to talk to you about, or maybe there isn't even anything. But I see you. I respect you. I yeah honor you as a person. You are here. I see you. Yes. And I give you this space of existing in my presence. I mean, there are a lot of people who just, no, 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 I don't see you. You're not there. And Very you can't so. see me if I don't look at you. And that's what not what she's doing here. She's, yeah, facing the other one. And that's, even though if you don't get along in one way or another, that's respect. But also how they screw I mean, I mean, the, the, the reason why um, Susan didn't want to interact with Talia a lot was that she said that she has to be unfair. No matter how good as a person Talia would be, she would be unfair because of her background with the psycho. Mm. And this, in this episode, we actually saw both of them screaming at each other over ways the psycho hurt them. Mm. So I felt like when they were talking about Ironheart and about Ivanova's mother, there was kind of an understanding of, okay, now we are talking from the same kind of pain. Yeah. Yeah, that was her. It, it definitely levels the playing ground a little bit where I think especially Susan is much more comfortable interacting because now she knows that there are similar levels of loss that she can talk about. And I think what also really important is at this point that in the end, Talia is not stopping um, Elisa to go or anything, wishing her luck and everything, um, which gives Ivanova the, the perspective of, okay, she's not working against me um and not not yeah like like the way psychops um i have experienced so i think this is also some kind of understanding she especially gained her there it's it's definitely also a confirmation for her that talia is making decisions of her own and even if these decisions align with what psycho would want she doesn't always have to go all the way through with it. If she was just a mouthpiece for Psycho, she would have stopped the girl, definitely. But no, here you get the confirmation. She recommends joining up with Psycho because she genuinely believes this is the best course of action. And if the girl decides otherwise, that is also fine, which is something that is aligned with Psycho, but not 100% that. And I think this is also like something she mentioned very early on. Um, in in line with this, I think this episode is also a very nice portrayal of, of Ivanova here where we get 100% the confirmation Ivanova has a massive bias against Psychor. And she has been arguably even unfair in her treatment of telepaths when it comes to Mr. Grey or so because if somebody is for Psychor, she's going to shut them out and going to be very antagonistic to them from the very beginning because... She just can't deal with this organization. But this is not, and this is what we see in this episode, any kind of bias against telepaths in general. Because this telepathic girl 
receives none of this antagonism, even after she massively invades Susan Ivanova's privacy and talks to her about her mother and stuff, something that she would never tolerate. But it's very clear here that she knows this girl has nothing to do with Psychor and she doesn't put any of that baggage on her, which is is nice to see, but also definitely something that not everybody would be able to do, making this distinction. Any more on that plot? I think there's not much more to, to say. Like, as it, it, it's not a big thing. It's more like a... I mean, helping tool for the for the main plot, but also a nice sweet in this episode to have. A, a, a very short final thing I would add to that. We learn in this episode that this girl arrived on the station when she was 12. A year later, her father dies and she has been living on her own and down below. And everybody is just kind of, yeah, that happens. And yeah. like, it's just like, if yeah. she hadn't been a telepath, she and like probably hundreds of other little little girls and boys on the station would have continued living as street urchins. And that's just a fact of life on Babylon 5 that nobody really has the power to change. There's probably some kind of social services that are horribly underfunded, but it, this can just happen to you. If you're a kid brought to Babylon 5 and your parents die, well, that's too bad. The government is not going to pay for your shipment back or any other family to contact you or anything. It's It's just kind of bad luck then. And yeah, this is just, I, it, it always throws me that this is something that like multiple people in the command stuff get told about and they'd all just kind of have to acknowledge, yeah, that really sucks. There's nothing we can do about that. It's just how it works. Yeah, and also, also not like they're um, quite emotional in, 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 in a way. It, it's felt a bit like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I don't know, talking about the weather report or anything. Yeah, I, I didn't feel there was, was much of emotion in there. It's 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 kind of like looking at the modern city and being like, yeah, so there's people here that just don't have any place to stay for the night and they might freeze to death in this like oncoming winter. And so if you think about it, it's really messed up that this is just a fact of life that exists, but yeah, it kind of does. And yeah, on this space station, we are, yay, in the future among the stars, but that kind of stuff still happens and people have just kind of arranged themselves with that so yeah I just this in this episode specifically uh, the, the reminder that lurkers are a thing on the station just throws me a little bit uh, every time through the loop yeah I mean we have we have gone so far but we are still living in capitalism so that still exists yeah is there's still rent to be paid on the space station oh we have more episodes on that not not to spoiler anything but yeah rent is a topic yeah <laughs> Um, but okay. I, I'm sure I would be able to, to, uh, have a place to, to sleep there. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I won't be able to offer that. You, you would be among our lurkers, like, like we all would. I mean, this is why this is a pretty fitting community name that they've chosen. So, um, but okay. I think this leaves us, uh, pretty much with the tapestry. Or is there anything else that we haven't touched on that we should? No. I think at this point you should... Um, make some some uh, yeah so, some picture thing with tapestry time. I should have like this <laughs> the more you know transition with tapestry time in there. Um, so Michael, what do you think will come back to us? Or what of the character developments? What do you think we will see more of? I I think we we kind of put it out here and there already in this in in, in the discussion 
Uh, so I'm not really, really sure if, if I'm able to, to summarize that. Um, you don't necessarily have to summarize, but maybe you can speculate a little more on things. For example, Chrysalis, what are these beautiful flowers are <laughs> going to reveal about the whole in Sinclair's mind? Any speculations on that? Well, I think there when when she's when Elisa tells him that, uh, then um, Sinclair says something about it, that it's meant to be a cocoon or yeah. something like that. Um, Who needs a cocoon? <laughs> yeah, something for development to go to the next stage of evolution. I don't know. Um, I really hope it's it's not not something like 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 the evolution part because I'm 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 not sure if I like this. We will have hand. to read superhumans and know everything <laughs> better. No, no, but but well, the the most common uh, picture you have if you talk about a cocoon is that, yeah, wrapped wrapped in 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 silk or or whatever um, cloth it is and. After some time, you break out as, yeah, uh, a butterfly, a new being, um, and yeah. Well, there are quite. <laughs> well, I don't suppose the Membari turn into a butterfly, but um, though it, though those uh, butterfly wings would be quite cute on them, I think. Butterfly um, energy, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but there are there. Are, if, I have to think like like Stargate, where you have um, oh, I, I'm not sure what it was called, uh, where the ancients ascending. Yeah, the yeah yeah, yeah the ancients uh, ascending. If it's um, like that, it's gonna be so obnoxious because every single time that yeah. happens in this show, it's horrible. Yeah, and it's it's on one hand it's super boring. On the other hand, you can't really explain it because it's supposed to be something really alien um to to you so how you can how do you explain something that doesn't exist yeah so yeah i i really hope it's not something like that um i don't know maybe maybe some it's connected to to something uh destructive because the um Narun said, said something like uh, all the species been wiped out. Uh, that that is something that didn't happen. Uh, I mean, why do I get a reaper feeling at this moment? A little bit. I mean, it it must be something, right? That is that is on the lens mind. Also, now that you mentioned Reaper, I think of like the Reaper larva, and so like everybody gets turned into goo and and turned yeah. into giant butterfly. That wouldn't be great. Uh, now, maybe at this point, for those who are have no idea what we're talking about, we're talking about the video game Mass Effect. If you don't know it, change it. Yeah, there has been like trailers coming out for the next one, so now is a great time to to get into it back again. Um, but I mean, maybe it's something more metaphorical, right? For me, the the striking thing is Dylan talks in this episode about the growing rift between the warrior caste and the uh, and the religious caste, and she talks about this very much like an inevitable inevitable thing, right? Like she does everything she can to limit this. So you know, chrysalis transformation. Maybe this is more metaphorically talking about the fact that the Mumbari as a whole will have to transform, like the caste structure has to transform in some way because it's not 
functional anymore or has been broken, something like this, or, you know, maybe what is happening right now is the growing pains into becoming something larger, like uh, that. that or going in, in a darker direction, like a civil war or something that would obviously affect everyone else, considering the um, resources and technologies the Mimbari have. Definitely. I mean, you know, it's we, we just learned that the Mimbari have put quite a lot of money into the Babylon project as well. So what happens if that, you know, is gone? Will will people try to replace Sinclair with somebody else or stuff like that? Like this, this would be a giant wrench into into everything. Um, in terms of other things that can be, be carried forward, you know, looking, looking maybe at our side plot a little bit, could this be the first inkling of Talia maybe getting pulled a little bit into Ivanova's direction when it comes to her stance on Psycho? Like, is this letting somebody go out away from Psycho somewhere else, something that maybe, she, maybe she will follow the progress this girl makes and see, oh, there's different ways that we could deal with telepaths uh, that, that are maybe not as intrusive or as, as authoritative. Could, you could think of this as a start of her detaching herself from Psychops. I mean, there's, we already have this, this little shadow, uh, in, in the, in the corners of, of Psychops of doing things that they shouldn't do. Yes. And so there could be also something coming up awesome. in a, in bigger scale for Talia to make a choice of being with Psychops or being no longer with them. So this is just a small detail, but, uh, especially in the last scene when they are hugging the girl in this episode, the fact that Talia always has the black gloves really stood out to me because it makes everything very artificial. Like every time she interacts with this girl in like very normal ways, it's always with these gloves on. And it just highlights to me, like there is such an artificial difference, uh, distance put between people by the way that Psychor approaches everything. This like emotional distance we talked about. So I, I could really see this moment being something that triggers in her the idea that, oh, that, that is wrong. Something is wrong here. This is not normal. This is not how you should treat children. Though maybe we could also count it as uh, the second step, considering uh, Ironheart. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Though I'm still curious, what's up with her new ability? That would have been so great if the girl just looked at her. You're telekinetic, by the way. <laughs> Everybody suddenly freaks out about it. But yeah, this is something. Now that we have confirmed Talia is still part of the cast, maybe we can continue with the storyline even. That would be great. Well, at least she is, at the moment, mm. part of the cast. Well, since yes. I already heard that, uh, like, yeah, there probably will be uh, Natoth saying goodbye at some point. Why? I like her tons and tons of makeup it's it's in this case and for so fortunately this is not something you have to worry about with talia but yeah everybody that is put in an alien suit has this problem that you know if you're allergic against the glue that kind of messes things up but no it was great to see Natal again in this episode and hopefully not for the last time um but yeah i think this is these are the main threats of course like with sinclair there's a whole lot more baggage about reconciling the Membari war, finding out what happened. But I think our chrysalis is the most concrete thing we have on this right now. Uh, other than that, I think this brings us pretty well into our outro section.
And back to our lurkers. Um, what about uh, the the last questions or polls we put out? Is there anything to report on? Yes, um, we did ask in the last episode how people feel about a little bit of Earth History 101. And uh, I basically put the poll out as a question of what kind of format people are most interested in. Should this be something that we throw into our general discussions like every time there's something that might be general uh, interesting like next time new jerusalem gets mentioned i can go into the lexicon and like find that out uh, or if they should be separate just in general videos on the history of of earth and other lore in the setting or should those be specials and people have been very avid in their interest in expanded lore videos on on babylon 5 in general so uh, it makes sense, like these books have been out of print for a little while, so people probably are interested in sort of the version of history that we are assuming here in our discussions about the setting. And other than that... Uh, don't be lying, they just want to see me making tests and fail horribly. Well, uh, you know... Uh, you have to take this test too, I make sure of it. We will do this, so uh, there's definitely... Uh, I'm very happy to say not very many people that met, that voted for the not interested at all category of this. So there's definitely some interest there. And I think the shape that is, this is going to take is that we are going to make these separate special things. Probably not full-length discussion episodes like this because I don't want to force you into those. Um, but they will probably be... Um, smaller topical chunks where we look at a certain aspect that is prevalent to the to the episodes that we are talking about and uh, it will cover a little bit of what does the expanded lore actually say and then what can we talk about is what makes this interesting there's nothing else to report then the question is like the one we asked or answered uh, ourselves in the beginning how would you get rid of a body tell us and this means you have to write there is no poll. You have to write with your fingers. You have to type it out. And the last thing... You can do this. I believe in you. The last thing not to report but to say is that um, we have a few interesting episodes ahead. The next one that we are going to have is going to be a double episode. where We are going to talk about the single two-parter of season one uh, as one big discussion, which might turn out a little bit longer, might not. Um, so you should ready yourself for a doozy because if they decided it's worth two episodes, it's going to be a big story. And as always, we will discuss it right here on our YouTube channel as well as on all the other platforms pretty much where you can find podcasts at the Third Age Podcast. And of course, here on YouTube, we're the cutest because here you can see us. As today, anyone who hasn't uh, listened on YouTube today, I had cat ears today. <laughs> so find us on YouTube, it's worth it. Certainly, but of course, we're all everywhere on social media uh, like Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon since last week. And um, well, of course, we're still on X, uh, formal, formerly known as Twitter. Um, so, yeah, if you want to tell us something about the questions we've asked or the things uh, we are discussing in general in this episode or any other episode, please, please write us. We are really happy. Um, to see any kind of comments, well, not any kind, but the the important kind, <laughs> you know what I mean. 
Um, so yes, please write to us, share and give us a like. If you like this episode, if there's something you don't like, you can write this also, but in a nice way. We want critic. It's not some bad mouthing. Um, so thank you for tuning in. We hope you had a very interesting time listening to us and hopefully until next time. <laughs>